News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's take a look at what's happening in the United States this morning. You may have seen it all. It's all over the place. The fact that the governor of New York resigned. Why such a big deal about this? Well, let's find out more this morning from Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Boy, this seemed like a huge story. Why is there so much attention being paid to Governor Andrew Cuomo? Well, uh, for a number of reasons. Number one, he is a governor who is facing a, a kind of series of allegations of sexual assault and sexual misconduct from 11 staffers that was laid out in a massive uh, damning attorneys general's report that had come out uh, last week. He's also facing a criminal investigation from the Albany County Sheriff's Office. So there was kind of a heightened sense of uh, what is going to happen. But he was also uh, a governor that was facing an increased call to step away from his position by leading members of the Democratic Party, including the House Speaker, including the Senate Majority Leader, including the President himself, saying it's time to go. Uh, you're potentially too toxic for the party. There has been so much national attention on Andrew Cuomo that it all kind of bubbled up uh, and the writing was essentially on the wall here. Right, because he was very prominent during the pandemic, even before the pandemic. He comes from a longtime political family, too. Yeah, absolutely. He does. He inherited a political dynasty from his father, who was once the governor of New York. Uh, Andrew Cuomo has risen up the ranks uh, through several leading and high positions in the New York State uh, Legislature or the New York State Assembly uh, over the last number uh, of decades. And you're right. He played a prominent role in the pandemic. He was kind of looked to as the guiding light to help states that were being hit hard as his state had been for so many months. But at the same time, he was also kind of facing serious allegations uh, of of downplaying the numbers of deaths when it came to nursing care facilities, that itself is under investigation. So it kind of serves as a, uh, a reminder to other governors that you may be looked upon nicely at one point, but flaws that you have will then be magnified. Right, because the Cuomo family is also very well known. I think a lot of people know also his brother, who is on CNN, and that proved to be quite contentious too, didn't it? Because it has also caught up Chris Cuomo. Yeah, look, Chris Cuomo uh, was found to be giving legal advice. Apparently, CNN knew about this, but giving legal advice to his brother. Uh, Chris Cuomo is a lawyer by trade before he's a journalist uh, and a commentator. Uh, and, you know, he's off uh, on a quote-unquote planned vacation. He usually takes this kind of week off every single year. It just kind of coincides with where uh, Andrew Cuomo's political fate is right now. But Chris Cuomo has faced serious kind of uh, um, calls to step aside during this crisis because he would flat out ignore the story about his brother, understanding that there's a conflict there and he couldn't talk about it, as the rest of his network was kind of going knees deep into it. So it really has shone uh, a difficult light on Chris Cuomo, on Andrew Cuomo, and now on the Cuomo family as a whole and the legacy they've left behind. And it seems to me, Reggie, that if you like follow New York politics at all, and it seems like it gets a lot of coverage all the time, is that this is just a long line of governors of New York who seem to run afoul with some kind of scandal. Yeah, I mean, look, it was within the last two decades that Andrew Cuomo himself, uh, while he was in office, was looking into uh, or, or potentially looking into charges about a former uh, governor. Uh, we had the former governor of New York, Elliot Spitzer, who had been uh, uh, facing an impeachment over a scandal uh, linked to a prostitution scandal. He resigned before that impeachment could take place. But this is something that, you know, New Yorkers are unfortunately used to having a, a governor that gets caught up in a scandal uh, that very easily could have been a 
avoided by not being, you know, putting someone in that situation. Uh, but much like Elliot Spitzer did in seeing the writing on the wall facing an impeachment, Andrew Cuomo resigned before that impeachment could take place. And what that does is open a door that in 2022, if he wants to try to run again, the impeachment won't be standing in his way. Right, because I understand that he was really trying to get to a fourth term so he could kind of beat the record that his dad held as governor of New York. But doesn't it seem like his career is kind of over at this point? Yeah, I mean, look, it's hard to kind of, you know, take the rust off of a t- off of a legacy, uh, you know, once it's kind of developed and set in. Uh, and we'll have to see kind of how New York moves forward, either with this governor or what happens uh, in the race next year. But this is also a country that has seen kind of plagued politicians or politically scandalized politicians run back into the spotlight and be welcomed in with open arms. More times than not, it happens in the Republican party obviously as we've seen over the last four years democrats oftentimes really try to push themselves away and take more of a moral high ground uh but you have to wait and see you know anything can play out over the next year whether it's the pandemic whether it's some other crisis across the state uh that cuomo may try to say look i'm the one who had the the experience i can get back in just yesterday we had the president criticizing cuomo for uh for the allegations but at the same time saying that he's done a hell of a job as governor. Yeah, I heard that too. So, and he gave two weeks notice. Who gives two weeks notice when they're quitting in a situation like this? Yeah, I mean, look, if anybody was listening to the way Cuomo talked yesterday, he was apologizing for the behavior, but at the same time, he was still very defiant. He was still uh, kind of trying to paint himself as as a victim of what he calls a political ambush with that report of sexual assault allegations. That didn't sit well with anybody uh, who came forward, any of those women who came forward or members of his party. But at the end of the day, he says that, you know, he'll hand the reins over uh, in two weeks to try and wrap up loose ends. It'll be interesting to see if he makes it those two weeks or what the reception is going to be to him from that inside staff that he has at the governor's mansion for the next 14 days or 13 days. It is fascinating. All right, Reggie, thanks for explaining it to us. Thank you. Reggie Giacchini, our global Washington correspondent there. Uh, Politics, especially in New York City, right, always seems to make international headlines. And Andrew Cuomo, and here's the other complicated part about all this. I mean, he'd been widely seen as, oh, steering New York through the pandemic. Uh, And he had this multi-million dollar advance that was given to him uh, writing a book about leadership during the pandemic that was supposed to be coming out. That, I can't imagine, is going to go over very well because now of this scandal, 11 women who were found, and that just 11 women at this point, you know, the word is there's more, but these are 11 women who were identified and talked to as part of the Attorney General's report in New York. And as a result of that, from pressure from allies and people, uh, he announced yesterday, Andrew Cuomo did, that he is stepping down. He has served for 10 years As governor of New York, his father, Mario Cuomo, served for 12 years. He was trying to break his dad's record. Does not look like he is going to do that. But I tell you, when you read through that report, as I did, I thought, how did this person get away with this this kind of behavior for so long? This is Mornings with Simi. We were just talking to Von Palmer from the Vancouver Sun about COVID-19 and how the cases continue to rise uncomfortably. 395 was our last count that we were given yesterday and more, I'm sure, to come today. Cases are continuing to rise in BC because of the Delta variant. 
And now that has people looking to September. September 7th, remember, was supposed to be the day that we walked into the final stage of BC's reopening plan where everything was wide open again. Even Dr. Bonnie Henry told us the last time we spoke to her that right now, like she was thinking and waiting to see what would happen, but it's not a guarantee that we take that step on September 7th. And what about school? That's a big concern. Parents, teachers, students, what are our schools going to look like? How can we make sure there will be a safe return in September? Well, the Safe Schools Coalition is going to be hosting a rally this coming weekend, allowing people to voice their concerns about this. But we wanted to talk about what concerns teachers have at this point. So joining us is the president of the BC Teachers Federation, Terry Mooring. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. Here we are talking about school again. It feels like we just had a bit of a break, but is this on your mind? It certainly is, and and I'll just note that the case counts actually for COVID right now uh, are higher than they were last time at this year, last year at this time, I should say, um, as we we're contemplating school starting. And so, you know, we see that the Delta variant has really changed things. And what we're seeing in other jurisdictions is that the Delta variant is actually, it's much more contagious and many more children are actually contracting it. And so this is causing quite, you know, a number of concerns as we contemplate school opening. So what do you think needs to be done to make schools a safe place in September? Well, there are a number of things that need to be done, and there's a number of factors in place right now. We know that 12 to 17-year-olds are eligible for the vaccine, but according to the BC CDC data that was released yesterday, only 20% of 12 to 19-year-olds are actually fully vaccinated. Um, And of course, we have children under 12 that aren't eligible for vaccination. And those students haven't been all together in schools in, you know, a couple of months. And so the concern is that when we do get folks back together, students back together, that we're going to see a real rise in cases in in schools, and we don't want to see that. Um, And what we're also hoping is that by reducing the space and the time between the two shots, that more students will be fully vaccinated um, by the time school starts. But the reality is it's still probably going to be a fairly low number of students that are actually fully vaccinated. And so we think we need to start the school year with a mask mandate again. Um, Why would you not do that? Why would you not have all the measures in place that could potentially help? Um, It is much easier to start with a mask mandate and then pull it back as things look better than it is to institute it after the fact. Um, And and the fact is we do see that there'll probably also be a need for additional measures in areas of the province where there are high case counts, like the central Okanagan, for example, and low vaccination rates, like places in the north. Uh, So there's a whole combination of factors that are causing concern and the need for those school safety measures to be put in place. Um, The other is school ventilation systems. Unfortunately, there hasn't been enough attention paid to school ventilation systems for many years, and there isn't any central tracking of the status of school ventilation. um, School ventilation. And so what we need to do also, and the government is working with us on this, but it's a very slow process of tracking down what's happening in different schools in BC. And those mitigation uh, efforts need to be put in place where there isn't adequate ventilation. And we also need to, there needs to be investment in, in improving ventilation. And this is not only important now, it's also important moving forward when we look at the concept of pandemic proofing our schools for other potential communicable diseases that, you know, may be in the future. 
So what is the status of this? Like, is there, are there negotiations going on with the provincial government or the education ministry? What kind of work is being done behind the scenes here on these issues? So there are ministry steering committees happening right now. There was one yesterday. Um, those are consultative groups, and so the partners get together, they have conversations, and sometimes they agree on the issues and sometimes they don't. Ultimately, those conversations go to the public health office and the decisions are made out of there. Um, you know, we know it's the responsibility. The ultimate responsibility is government to make these decisions. And we saw last year government finally put in a mask mandate, um, even though it wasn't necessarily widely supported in the provincial health office. Um, so, you know, there will be decisions made there. But we need government to make sure that schools are as safe as possible for the start of the school year. And that's going to include requiring masks, at least at the beginning of the school year. Right. Is there a difference? Like, do we differentiate here between elementary schools and high schools? Because, you know, high school students, theoretically, they could get the vaccination. So they, there should be more protection, whereas in elementary school, children, they cannot. But the reality is that students uh, 12 to 19 are only vaccinated at 20% right now and only fully vaccinated at 20%. So it's hard to know where we're going to be at in September. I certainly hope there's a plan for vaccination clinics to be in schools as well because that's much too low of a number. Um, In elementary schools, of course, there's no opportunity for students to be vaccinated. Uh, And so there needs to be a K-12 mask policy. This is similar to what universities are also calling for. Um, So we're not alone here. Uh, And, you know, the Delta variant is showing us in other jurisdictions that even younger children are getting it at much higher numbers. And so the Delta variant is acting very differently from COVID-19. And I'm not sure, um, you know, that everyone is is looking at it that way. We're really tracking closely the schools in other jurisdictions that have begun to open. And there's a concerning story that is unfolding in in those schools. Okay, so what are teachers telling you at this point? What are you hearing? Well, teachers are concerned and, and, uh, you know, and families are concerned. And that's one of the reasons that there's going to be a rally on Saturday. Um, because there's a real frustration that their concerns are not being heard. In other words, you know, I hope that um, we are listened to more this year. Uh, We've had that problem in the last school year where we have folks making decisions about what's happening in schools who are far removed from schools and aren't necessarily talking to the people that are actually working in classrooms um, to make those decisions. And so, you know, we're making our position very clear at the steering committee and and publicly um, because we feel that very strongly that we need to make sure those safety measures are in place to protect our children. And and why on earth would we not do that? You know, there were a lot of concerns expressed uh, last year uh, around, you know, how masks would be with children and how, you know, difficult it would be for children. But we didn't see that come to fruition once mask mandates were put into place. Um, you know, it, it really wasn't much of an issue. And, and we already had seen teachers developing cultures of mask wearing where it really wasn't an issue. The problem with not making it a mandate is you really put it, uh, all those safety measures on the shoulders of teachers, and that's not appropriate. Um, what we, have, we saw last year is that schools were relatively safe, um, and that was because teachers right. really had to work at making you know, those classrooms safe without all the tools necessary. But the Delta variant is very different, and so we need to act differently around it. It's, it's 
95% or more of cases in BC right now are the Delta variant. And so we need to uh, act accordingly. We're in a different scenario right now, and we need to make sure those safety measures are in place. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us to talk about that this morning. Thank you so much, Simi. Terry Mooring, president of the BC Teachers Federation, talking about concerns, and I think rightfully so, a lot of parents have this too, about what schools are going to look like in a couple of weeks. Do we need to renew that mask mandate, given the spread of the Delta variant and the fact that so many kids, well, they just simply can't get vaccinated. We're not vaccinating people under the age of 12, right? It's a lot of kids in our school who could be transmissible. So what should they do? You can email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. Given how hot it's going to be over the next couple of days, it's a good time to talk about air conditioning. A couple of interesting notes in this BC Hydro survey that is out this morning, that if you are working from home, according to their survey, um, says you miss the air conditioning at work. Uh, a quarter of the workers indicated in their survey that they miss the office air conditioning. Uh, and that's a bit of a reprieve because most of us do not have air conditioning at home. 60% of British Columbians do not have that. In fact, we're well below the national average when it comes to air conditioning. Let's talk more about the results of this. Joining us now is Kevin Aquino, who's a BC Hydro spokesperson. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Simi. How are you doing today? Because I would imagine it's pretty busy at BC Hydro. Everybody cranking up that air conditioning. (laughs) Well, I'm working from home today. But yeah, I do miss uh, working out of the office for the air conditioning. You're one of those people. I am. You are one of the people in this <laughs> survey. Uh, so tell me about what you found in terms of how much air conditioning has a- use has actually increased. Yeah, of course. So um, British Columbians are well below the national average uh, when it comes to air conditioning. Uh, I would like to note that less than 40% use it at home compared to the national um, average, about 60%. Um, in terms of um, an increase, there has been about a 50% increase in AC use in the province over the past decade. And in condos and apartments, that number has increased by even more, by about 70%. So we must be seeing a lot more purchasing of air conditioning units then. Yeah, so last year, about 20% of at-home workers purchased an air conditioning unit to stay cool. And with increased temperatures this year, that number is expected to be even higher. That must really increase people's bills, like when it comes to using energy in the summertime. Yeah, so we are seeing, um, of course, this is um, this is causing um, customer bills to increase. Um, and to be honest, it actually depends on the type of um, air conditioning unit you use. So it ranges from about 40% for a window unit to about 300 for a central um, unit um, uh, over the summer. Portable units cost about $100 over the summer to run, but many British Columbians who... Um, there are many British Columbians who have one or multiple units, and that, of course, increased their costs over the summer months. Is that something you're going to be monitoring, say, once we get into fall, you'll be able to take a look back and see really what changed over the summer and with the heat? 
Yeah, of course. So we, um, it's, it's quite like a beautiful science that we have here where we are able to look at demand um, by the hour and by the minute. Uh, I would like to note that we are a winter peaking utility, so we do have the highest demand in the winter months. Um, however, this summer, due to um, the heat dome in June, we did break records and we did actually break um, energy consumption records three consecutive days in a row. Oh, boy. Okay, so are you bracing for more of that this week? Yeah, so with uh, temperatures rising across um, southern BC over the next several days, electricity demand is expected to increase as well. Uh, We aren't expecting to reach levels that we did see at the end of June, but they will still be much higher than normal. Uh, The highest demand for power is expected on Friday when peak hourly demand could reach up to 8,200 megawatts, and that is near uh, record. Sorry, that is near record breaking. Um, during the extreme heat wave in June, we did see summer peak hourly demand uh, records break three times on three consecutive days. But our highest um, ever summer peak hourly demand was recorded um, this year in June, um, June, 18, uh, June 28, when demand reached uh, 8,500 megawatts. Oh, boy. Okay, it's going to be hot. Kevin, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Kevin Aquino, BC Hydro spokesperson talking about air conditioning. Uh, So we mentioned BC is below the national average. Uh, Fewer than 40% of people use it at home. Canadian average is 60%. Manitoba and Ontario have the highest proportion of households with air conditioning at 80% and 74% respectively. So BC is catching up. And I tell you, after this summer, I think a lot of people are thinking seriously about that for sure. You want to weigh in? Simi at CKNW. This is Mornings with Simi. You may have heard in the news that the Squamish First Nation is launching a probe into a former residential school in North Vancouver. They want to know what happened to the children who attended St. Paul, some of whom never made it home. Now, this story is a little different from some of the others that we've heard about recently, because this investigation is really a team. It's being done among the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations, along with the Catholic Archdiocese. Well, joining us now is one of the speakers from the announcement yesterday. It's James Borkowski, who's the Archbishop's Delegate for Operations here in Vancouver. James, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on, Simi. How long has the Archdiocese been working with the First Nations about this issue? Uh, We've been on site with them for about the last two months. And what prompted that? Well, thankfully, the Squamish Nation, along with Musqueam and Tsleil-Waututh, were very careful and methodical in their process. And they invited us to the table at the very beginning, which has been extremely helpful as far as Uh, giving us the chance to share records and to help in any other way that they're asking us to help. Right. James, some people might be surprised to hear that, though, because in other jurisdictions, there hasn't been that kind of cooperation from the archdiocese. Uh, That's very true. And one of the first things we pledged, Archbishop Michael Miller had said, our first job is to listen and to be ready when asked to help. And this is the first time that, that three nations historically have gotten together on a on an effort like this. And so we were deeply grateful to be asked to contribute in some ways. And we look forward to learning more about what their needs and priorities are and finding more ways we can help. Is that, does that involve kind of digging into archives to see what kind of information is there? Uh, It can be help with archives. So as you know, most of the archives are with government agencies. And so we have scholars and historians that have accessed all of the documents and they will be ready to help 
the three nations in any way we can in order to give them every document that's that's on record about these schools. Is the Archdiocese prepared for that too? There must have been some discussions, James, about how there will be some difficult information here. Yeah, I mean, we provided our documents during the TRC process, and certainly the TRC reports themselves um, detailed an estimated 4,100 deaths of students during the time these schools were operated. Uh, so what we're interested in is helping these three First Nations right now get all the information they need to continue on their path to healing and to find out these kids' names and their stories. And uh, there are, there's a lot of science available now that can help them know what they died of. So anything we can do to provide comfort and additional information, we're, we're ready to do. It's such an important step to have this happen. But James, why do you think other you know branches of the Catholic Church, other archdioceses have, have not taken this step for that healing? Um, I think part of it, there's definitely a, a hesitance about stepping on toes and thinking we're coming forward with solutions. So as we've spent a couple of months listening and preparing, you know, this is the one project we've been able to really make progress with. Um, but if it doesn't start with building relationships with First Nations communities, it does make our, our contributions much more difficult. So Col Salem from the Squamish Nation, I think, said it beautifully yesterday that this is the beginning of their journey to healing, and they want all stakeholders there throughout the process. And that's that's historic. I can't say enough about uh, how beautiful it's been to see them not only bring us into the project, but to bring two other nations in as well. Do you hope to set an example, perhaps, for how this could be done elsewhere? I think that would be a beautiful outcome if, uh, if Col Salem and the Squamish Nation's leadership helped create a template that we could then we, we hope that other nations will want to enter into similar relationships and that we can provide whatever support we can. What do we know right now about St. Paul's Indian Residential School? How many children were there? Over a 60-year period, there were just over 2,000 kids that attended. And in addition to these three nations that were part of the ceremony yesterday, there were many others that had children sent to that school. Uh, and it was shut down in 1959. Right. So there's still a lot of questions then about what happened. How many didn't make it home? In in the documentation that the Squamish Nation has reviewed to date, there's an, there's estimated to be 12 students that died while they attended. But that was actually in quite a tight time period from around 1903 to 1917, when several pandemics and diseases were prevalent in the area. So there could be more. And again, that's why we're hoping that the records can show as much as they can to give the Squamish Nation and Tsleil-Waututh and Musqueam as well any any peace and, and closure that they're looking for in honoring their ancestors. Uh, do you know how long this process might take? I would say as as long as they need, especially they made, um, they were emphatic yesterday about the desire to speak to community members and elders, and there were dozens of elders there yesterday. So I, I really think they're, they've proven to us that they're going to be careful and methodical. And even the, the cultural safety around how they're sharing this news with their members has been beautiful to watch. So we're, we really are hoping that uh, we're ready. If it, if it takes months or years, we'll, we'll be here ready to meet whatever needs we can help them meet. Well, James, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. Thank you for having me on. 
That's James Barkowski, who's the Archbishop's Delegate for Operations in the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Vancouver. The story is different. In the last 24 hours, you undoubtedly heard about it in the news. There have been similar stories, right, of investigations into residential schools in the last couple of months. Uh, but this one involves three First Nations, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam, getting together with the Catholic Archdiocese to investigate St. Paul's Indian Residential School. Now, that added, you know, group of the archdiocese and getting, you know, them involved is something that we haven't seen elsewhere. So, you've heard their reasonings for that. Uh, And let's hope this is a process that is extremely helpful uh, for the First Nations involved here. And we should add that anyone experiencing pain or distress as a result of their residential school experience can access a 24-hour toll-free and confidential National Indian Residential School Crisis Line. That number is 1-866-925-4419. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, I feel very passionately on the issue of literacy. People know I'm a big reader. I love books. They were a huge part of my childhood growing up. More than 1 million children in Canada, though, are estimated to have below-grade-level reading skills. And children whose families are hit hardest by the pandemic are also the ones who are at greatest risk of falling behind in reading. So the Surrey Food Bank is trying to do something about that. They've paired up with the Canadian Literacy Foundation, and they're trying to get books to children. Great event going on at the Surrey Food Bank today, actually, where high-profile children's book author Holman Wang is going to be meeting with kids, giving them signed copies of his books. Our Raji Sohal joins us now with more. Raji, I love this event. (laughs) Me too, Simi. It's such an important one. I also feel like books made a major difference in my own childhood. And I think meeting an author is especially important for kids. You know, to my own kids, that would be like meeting a unicorn. They still don't understand that the authors of their books, like that's their job. That's what they do. (laughs) They're kind of like Santa Claus to them. Well, we all know, like we've all come across those kinds of studies that show that exposing young children to books early on, like reading to them and, and taking them to the library, doing things like that improves literacy skills later on in life. And I actually saw that big time in my own life. We did not have heaps of toys in my house as a kid. And we actually didn't even own that many books because we were a library family. We went to the library every Friday afternoon. But the ones that I did have, the books that I owned, you betcha, I still remember those covers. I remember the smell of those books. Those books are so memorable to me. And Holman Wang's books are especially unique because they are not your regular illustrations. I know you've had a chance, right? To, Loved them. to look yes. at some online. They're incredible. They're these uh, needlepoint figures. They look like tiny stuffed animals almost. Um, uh, the look is achieved by using like wool that's been stabbed a bunch of times with a needle and then molded on just a minuscule scale. To put this into context, Simi, these days, a lot of kids' books illustrations are just fully 100% done on computer. They're digitally drawn, you know, very clean lines, or maybe stock photography is involved. They just don't have the, the, any warmth to them. Um, but Holman Wang's books absolutely do. And he did this very popular baby board book series um, in this style that was uh, based upon Star Wars, and he did not cut corners. There are publishers that slap together you know, really simple baby board books with stock photography, and they could probably do that in a couple of days with a good designer. And here I am slaving over these images 
for almost a year because I obviously wanted to respect the source material. I'm a huge Star Wars fan and I wanted every scene to be right. I wanted the, the, the sets to be right. I wanted the characters to be right. I wanted the lighting to be right. Um, so there was just so much love and attention that went into it because frankly, I didn't want to disappoint any Star Wars fans. I love that because I'm a huge Star Wars fan. (laughs) Lots of people are. And I saw his work and I thought, oh, when I, if I was a kid, I would go crazy for this. Yeah. I'm not a kid and I'm going crazy for them. They're excellent. And like, you know, Star Wars is so sleek and techy, but then Holman Wang's illustrations, this kind of needlepoint effect he does is so warm and so analog. So I love that juxtaposition. It's just adorable. And he, you know, has spent a lot of time on these. Um, he's a, He goes through a painstaking process to make every single picture that goes into a book. Here he is talking about his process. So I think of my process of bookmaking and illustration as uh, something akin to movie making, actually. So first I cast the characters and I do that by creating them out of felt. And for those people who don't know, uh, needle felting is a process of repeatedly stabbing loose wool until uh, the fibers entangle and you use a specialized barbed needle. And every time you stab, the wool fibers get tighter and tighter and uh, denser and denser. And then you can start to actually sculpt. So I cast my little figures and then I either build little scale model sets or I take my figures out on location and I look for, um, you know, natural environments that might fit a particular scene. And I will either do the photography in the studio or uh, out somewhere on location. Oh, so much work that goes into this. People should really look on YouTube and check out his work and what goes into it. And I can't believe he's giving away copies of his books today. Yeah, the Surrey Food Bank is part of this awesome initiative to help children uh, get some new books that they own. And these will be signed by him. He's giving away copies, signed copies of Great Job Mom and Great Job Dad. These are awesome books that my kids love too. Um, They just have these really cool, accurate, non-stereotypical scenes of real parenting. Like one of my favorite scenes involves kids acting up at a restaurant. You know, they're like playing with their chopsticks and mom looks annoyed and dad is handing an electronic device to the kid to get him to just sit down and eat his food. And they're just all really relatable. I I really love his style. I love the way Holman Wang approaches his content and And also that he's so excited about this initiative too. That matters a lot. And so this year, the Canadian Literacy Foundation's goal is to send 150,000 books across Canada through food banks. And they're trying to do that all this summer. So this is part of that awesome initiative. Oh, that is amazing. Well, thank you for telling us all about it this morning. Thanks, Simi. That is our Raji Sohal. Now, that initiative is actually going to be announced this morning officially, Raji giving us a preview there. So kudos to the Surrey Food Bank for getting involved with the Canadian Literacy Foundation and doing this. Anything to get more kids reading and excited about reading and learning stuff is a great idea. So check out the Surrey Food Bank or Canadian Literacy Foundation for more information on that.